0: Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode Monster The movie's horrific rape scene is grueling to watch. In a car, a terrified prostitute is bound at the wrists and tied to one of the door handles. Already bloodied and beaten, she is viciously sodomized by the man who picked her up by the highway. Somehow, she breaks free and, wild with rage, bravely turns the tables on her attacker. She grabs a gun from her bag and fires bullet after bullet into his chest. The audience, watching breathlessly, feels a rush of sympathy for her. The problem is, it's not true. The movie is monster which chronicles the one-year killing spree by America's first female serial killer, Eileen Warnus. Actress Charlize Theron won an Academy Award for her portrayal of Warnus. Quote, with the movie's sympathetic take, Hollywood has put its bootprint on a piece of history. I find the movie's distortions disturbing unquote. Those words come from Sue Russell, Eileen's biographer and author of the book Lethal Intent. Ms. Russell joins me now on Murder Most Foul. So welcome, Sue. Thank you, James. Nice to be with you. So before we get into uh, the nitty-gritty, let's ask a little bit about your uh, you know your background, what you do, what you did, what you're still doing, and how you came by to picking this case to write about.
1: Well, I was a journalist in the UK, which is my homeland, and I came to the States for three months to freelance and never went home again. <laughs> so that meant I was a correspondent for a bunch of London magazines, newspapers for years. And um, I did books occasionally, and still do books occasionally. And, um, you know, I enjoy doing them, but I would not want a steady diet of books. I I, I like journalism and where it can take you. And you, if you're a freelancer, you get to pick your own stories pretty much. And then you just have to find an editor who wants them. So it gave me a lot of leeway sort of over the course of my career to do things i felt strongly or passionate about so it it's been a brilliant life what can i say (laughs) but i'm slowing down now james because the eileen warner story um let's see that she was caught in 1991 and so i wrote the book pretty well right after that after covering her trial, etc., cetera, um, her various court hearings. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me, but it's been a long time since I wrote that book. And we've done updates since, like, on the 10 years she spent on death row. Um, but in actual fact, it's been a project that's had a long life because I didn't realize it when I first came across it, that she would be such an... Uh, what's the word, um, icon, you know, her standing, she's not really been uh, a precursor of similar cu- uh, female killers. So she's kind of kept her status, if you will, as being a, a, of great interest to people in law enforcement, psychology, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera. And, um, it's, it's it's still going strong. The book is still going strong. Thankfully, how nice. I was independently interested in it, and I I forget how quickly I lined up a book contract, but pretty quickly. But I did go in with a newspaper assignment letter in case I was stopped at the door of the courtroom or anything of that nature. So I covered my bases, and I did file some stories for the UK. Um, But very early on, I was writing the book, which was first published in the UK, um, by Virgin, and in Australia, actually, UK and Australia, yeah. She and her brother Keith, who was just 18 months away from her in age, um, their mother, Diane, abandoned them when they were very young, very young, to her own parents, her grandparents. So, and then... uh, with digging, I found that uh, Diane took them back briefly, but then abandoned them a second time. So psychologists will tell you that if kids don't get the ongoing nurturing and love and oxytocin—rather, oxytocin, sorry, oxytocin—the that hormone that is so crucial to feeling nurtured—if they don't get that in the very early years of life. It's extremely damaging. So we know that she had a very disrupted life in in those very early years. And um, the mother was very young and her husband, Eileen's father, never actually met Eileen. So um, she grew up with the grandparents and People say she was sexually abused by her grandfather, but I don't know if that's true, James. She once said it very briefly, one comment. Something you have to know about Eileen is that she changed her stories and lied at the drop of a hat. We shouldn't be surprised by that, I guess. But there's a bit of a tendency for anything she said to be latched onto as Gospel, and in fact, uh, we don't we don't know for sure. More often, she denied that her grandfather sexually abused her. I don't know, but given what happened to her, we know she had a rotten time at his hands. He used to whip her with a leather belt, and she was always in trouble. And you know, we came to know that later on, of course, she had personality and character dis- issues that made it very hard for her to behave normally. She had an explosive temper, and this alienated not only, I'm sure, the grandparents who were trying to raise her, but also friends at school. So she was very isolated, you know. Um, so it was, a, it was not a good childhood. Uh, some of the people I interviewed, one of them I recall saying he could hear the shouting across the, yard, you know, to their house across the way, that kind of thing. We know, uh, and we do know, you know, she started this behavior when she was 11, 12. Someone had to have sexually abused her, James. I'm saying we don't know it was the grandfather. We don't. There was a neighbor uh, who was a likely suspect, in my opinion. Um, But it could have been anybody, couldn't it? It really could have been anybody. Um, And you couldn't get the story straight from her. But something made her as sexually promiscuous at such a young age. It didn't come out of nowhere. So... Was another strike against her childhood. It was a rotten childhood, and somebody somewhere introduced her to sex at a very inappropriately early age.
0: And um, she also turned to prostitution verily as a very young person uh again mostly to have money for for beer for for cigarettes i guess at one time uh her friends would call her the the cigarette pig or cigarette whore because she used this money you know to buy cigarettes and she
1: always wanted money she was very um, mercenary in that sense um, she learned that it could buy her friendship and people in her life so she would buy the booze for parties with this money. She would really try to buy friendship, and not very successfully, unfortunately. People didn't like her. You may remember in in Lethal Intent, I described a scene where uh, you know the kids would go to this place called The Pits by a lake uh, area, and they had a fort built there, and they used to play kissing games, and they'd pair up, etc., and no one ever wanted to kiss Eileen, you know? So it's uh, it more rejection. If you look at the rejections that stacked up. It's a pile it, on, yeah. you know, it's a formula I, for doom. It's a formula for disaster. I I, mean, I always likened it to dominoes falling. It would be like this is one, there's the next and, you know, they just kept going and going. There were no positive strikes. She had a hearing problem, which her grandmother would not accept. And consequently, she didn't get the help that she needed. She didn't get a hearing aid, that's for sure. But, you know, I think they put her in the front of the classroom at one point. But there were also red flags very early on. I have, I was just looking at it last week. I found it when I knew you and I would be speaking. One of the school reports and the counsellor had written, this child needs help now. So you know, there was the red flags were there, but the help wasn't.
0: Yeah, and this is one of the I, we do go. You know, we'll go sideways here with this. But every time we have a, a school shooting or something, we, we look to the guns, we look to the uh, Facebook, we look to to uh, red flags, we look to this, we look to that, and oh, we're pas- passing red flag laws and so on and so forth. So uh, it's all good, but it doesn't help if someone really does raise a red flag and this is not this is not one of her buddies who wants to get back or at her it's a teacher and the yeah. teacher and whatever reason and and i'm sure the teacher didn't think well if we don't do this she's going to kill people no. but at the same no. time you know i don't care if it's her grandmother I don't, you know then give the kid to social services as horrible as that is if you don't want to like i said you don't want to get her a hearing aid you you don't want to uh, uh take her to a psychiatrist psychologist I, I there's nothing i can do about that but these poor kids who get stuck in that where right. they can't help themselves
1: no, no. And she abs- she absolutely could not. And she tried to she tried to have friendships. She, and this explosive tantrum temper issue of hers just made it very hard. Kids didn't want that. They didn't want to be around that. I think Dawn Botkins, who uh, knew her well for a couple of years back there and um, was a, her best friend, I guess, and who's written a book at some point, um, she was probably the only person who put up with it and who, I don't know, made, it, made light of it or I don't know how she coped with it. I haven't talked to her, but she um, really her efforts to socialize, to have bond, bonds with fellow teenagers, etc, they all failed miserably. So she was you can't overstate how isolated she was and having a very rough time at home. So uh
0: not not technically fast forward, but at a very young age. So she's find a, she's sort of out on her own. Um, yeah. um uh, you know, living in in, you know, a rundown rental, if you will, sometimes hotels, uh all c- continually moving, but in the yeah. you know, in the same general area. And um her her real only source of income, the best as I can remember from lethal
1: intent, uh it was prostitution. Right. Right. No, I mean, I didn't really find any evidence that she ever held jobs. There was something about her going for a job interview once. Um, but no, whereas her, the love of her life, Tyria Moore, who she met in the 80s in Florida, worked as a hotel maid, etc. Eileen never did hold down jobs. No, she was a prostitute.
0: Oh, um. Eileen's really only long, long-term relationship was with uh, another woman named Ty, um, and in that circumstance, it also was a physical relationship. Um, but do we know for a fact, one way or another, whether um, Eileen identified uh, as gay or lesbian or bisexual, what, you know, what, was, uh, what was her you know, propensity?
1: You know, it's hard to know. Eileen's mind is quite a quagmire as you can imagine you know trying to figure things out but uh, I don't I don't think she thought of herself as a lesbian she did have sex with men with no money involved uh, I interviewed one man in particular who with, with whom she lived for a little while and um, there were others there were others and she connected with them and you know sex, was part of the relationship. I don't think that she thought of herself as a lesbian, but what she got from Ty and one other woman before that, as best we can tell, was some emotional uh, sustenance that she'd not never found anywhere else, really. Um, the guy who I interviewed at Lens really tried to help her. When Eileen... Was drunk one time and went and did an armed robbery in a little supermarket and uh, shot herself in the stomach, etc. She ended up in prison for I think it was three and a half years, and he would go visit her almost every week. So that she did have that, but it wasn't it it wasn't really what she thought. Maybe maybe she was a lesbian. I I hesitate to say that because I do want to emphasize that not every sexual relationship or encounter with guys was prostitution or or rape, you know. Certainly she was raped, I'm sure of it, no question. Multiple times, I'm not surprised to hear. But not all her relationships with guys were bad.
0: And so how did she meet? Uh, I
1: forget, it's in the book. Yeah, how did she meet? Oh, yes. Okay. Um, oh, in a bar. Eileen met everyone in a bar. <laughs> she, she, she liked her beer. She loved her beer. You know, it's funny because there are certain things that she had a hard time admitting. And being raped by the grandfather certainly could be one of them, you know, that she never really fessed up to. It may have happened. I don't know, Jim. It was uh, Ty's best friend, Cammy. It was her home and her family, husband, children. And one of the kids went in and said, Ty's got a woman in her room. Yeah, right. So they spent that first weekend together, and it was full-on very heavy. But over time, the sexual side ebbed away. It wasn't a driving force. It was this connection. Eileen had borderline personality disorder. There's a good book on borderline personality disorder called, I think this is right, it's something like, I I hate you, don't leave me. So there was always that dichotomy for her. So someone with borderline personality disorder like Eileen, their worst possible fear is abandonment. And she and Ty had this close, close bond, and Eileen freaked out whenever Ty showed any signs of abandoning her, possibly moving back to Ohio where her family lived or anything of that nature, or another woman came into the picture that she, she felt threatened.
0: And what's interesting, as you point out, is that this was a full on emotional at that point, even if it's all twisted, uh, not twisted, but you know, Eileen has her issues, but if for her, it was the comfort of an emotional, you know, we have people, boyfriends, girlfriends saying, oh, you're gonna leave me and they, they get all upset. It, it would yeah. have nothing to do with se- not, the sex was not the driving point. It was, as you say, this this was the, the touchstone. This is what kept her sort of in her own mind grounded.
1: You know the things that she had trouble talking about like who first sexually abused her another thing was drugs she always denied doing drugs but I don't quite believe that James I think to her for some reason it was acceptable that she drank beer and believe me they drank a lot of beer we're talking 24 to 48 cans or bottles a day uh, you know that was a lot, was a lot of beer but I can't imagine her turning down drugs that came her way. And in those kinds of encounters and those kinds of worlds in which she moved, there had to be drugs. There had to be a lot of drugs. There were in all environments in that era. And I think it was something that in her mind she'd made up her mind she she wasn't going to fess up to. But I, I suspect that she... I suspect that she took drugs. Beer may have been her first choice, probably was, and certainly a lot of signs to point to that.
0: So let's talk about Richard Mallory, um, who was the, the man that she was actually, the one murder that she was convicted of, although she did uh, um, confess to several others after she was convicted. But let's talk about the uh, Richard Mallory case, which is is prominent
1: in the movie. Richard Mallory's the first man to, she confessed to killing, put it that way. And so what happened that night, we don't know. But we do know that when she was caught and she described the encounter, she went variously from saying um, he wouldn't take his jeans off, he wasn't going to pay me, He, if he had paid me, he wasn't going to. Uh, He was holding the money. He was not going to hand it over. She had various stories. It varied pretty well every time she told it. Um, And she did use the term self-defense repeatedly, but she didn't describe anything that came even remotely close to what she said one year later, the first time anybody, you know, in the outside world had heard it from her was when she took the witness stand at her trial and she told a story of her encounter with Richard Mallory which varied quite a lot, uh, well very drastically from her original descriptions. Initially she said that they talked in the woods for five hours and then they got to the sex. You know she said that he had told her she'd make a good therapist They had a really good talk, you know. They enjoyed each other. They had vodka and orange juice and they were drinking up a storm and talking. Eventually they got round to sex and, of course, this is where the stories, you know, and what happened. But what we do know is that that night when she shot Richard Mallory, he was in his driver's seat of his car, fully dressed, his belt buckle was a bit skew with but his belt was done up. His flies were done up, his zipper. He, the first bullet hit him from the passenger seat. Went in through the arm and on through into his lung. There were f- he got out of the car, she got out of the car, and she shot him three more times. So, okay, fast forward to the trial. Suddenly on the witness stand, Eileen comes up with a very different story. She said that he tied her to the steering wheel, tied her wrist with stereo cords, and that he anally raped her, and that he squirted rubbing alcohol or visine or something into her orifices, and that it hurt terribly, etc. And essentially, you know, of course, that he raped her. So there were a lot of open mouths during the trial when she came out with this account because we'd never heard it before. She'd never said anything about it before. She never said he raped her, tied her up, etc., etc. Then we have to go back to the crime scene where there were no stereo cords found she pulled a bit of old carpet that had been dumped over his body and she left him she left in with his car she turned his pockets inside out and took the money anything that he had which we think was about 300 bucks so she took his money and off she went now i don't know about you but i think if i had been raped brutally in the woods by some guy like that i would have been out of there faster than a speeding bullet i wouldn't have been standing around his body turning the pockets inside out etc so you know you you listen to all this and well bottom line it wasn't very convincing it just didn't (laughs) that's i'm sorry but it wasn't um i know that a lot of people wanted eileen to be the ultimate victim and certainly when a movie was made about the case, supposedly based upon the true story, Monster, which won Charlize Theron an Oscar, it was very, very clear that she killed, Eileen, uh, killed Richard Mallory in response to being brutally raped. But let's go back to the facts, Jim. She, she traveled with um, a kill bag, you might say. In which she kept a gun and Windex to wipe down the fingerprints, and she called these her killing days, Jim.
0: So she returns to her place, which again at this time she's living with Ty, and yes. and does she? Because again, this is this comes out later. How much did Ty know? And of course, the the authorities deciding whether they want to charge her as an accessory after the you know, any of those things, or a participant, yeah. or a participant. And uh, what does she
1: tell on this first one? She came in and Ty was sitting on the floor watching TV and Eileen said, I killed a man today. And Ty would later say that she thought she must be joking or was being Eileen or just saying some, you know, throwaway remark, trying to impress her or whatever. She didn't for one moment think that this was true. And importantly here nor did she complain about having been attacked raped there was no blood there was no sign of dishevelment no sign of injury nothing else that was cause for concern she just she said i've got a car outside they were going to be moving into a new place anyway so she said we're going to move tonight we're doing it now so Ty rallied, and they gathered everything up, and they used the car to move, and then she got rid of it.
0: So now, again, now the authorities, obviously, they've got more information, they find the car, they trace yeah. it back to the body, and, yeah. and and can figure it was a robbery, or a sexual thing gone wrong, as it was, and they proceed from there, but uh, there's not a lot of... Uh, you know, we were all used to law and order where everything gets wrapped up in an hour. But, yes. you know, I with, mean, a bow, trace- with a
1: bow on it. <laughs> yes. And, and
0: you know, so you're tracing back to the bar he was at. Who was the people who were with? They, they, I mean, that's going to all be dead end. And how soon, again, we're we're piecing this together on our own. Some by her after she was caught. She did, you know, and after the trial, I guess she admitted to some more. uh As criminals do, they, you know, go along and then it said, yeah, I... I killed these people too. Uh, When was, when can we figure the next hit was?
1: Well, so that was December 1989 and then in June 1990, she killed, let's see, David Spears, Charles Caskeddon and Troy Burris. Um, They all disappeared or their bodies were found in June, July 1990 and then after that, there was, um, I'm just thinking, Dick Humphreys was, I think, the following November. And, uh, but Peter Seams was July. Now, he's, he's the odd man out insofar as his body has never been found. And Eileen can't help. She, they took her out. She thought she could tell them where it was but she was too, too drunk to remember is really what it came down to. And also different was the fact that she kept that car and she and Ty drove around in it for a whole month, not just one night. She didn't feel the same pressure to get rid of it for some reason that we still don't know. And um, so Peter Seams, who was a missionary, um, Religious man, and he's still the big question mark. Where is he? Where are his remains? Yeah. Was Was the one where she was standing
0: over someone, and he was gurgling, or something? Or is that another murder? I'm thinking about.
1: That, you know, that was um, Charles Humphreys, Dick Humphreys. Okay. Um, was September 1990, and yes, he's the he's the gentleman who. She said she stood over him, gurg- uh, and he was gurgling, and she put another shot in his head, put him out of his misery.
0: There was a lot of
1: overkill on all yes. of them yes one gentleman was nine bullets and I call them gentlemen advisedly by the way and I, I you know I hope your listeners are open to hearing this because if they've seen monster they might think otherwise. I really get riled up when people insist on calling saying that she killed Johns they're not all Johns they weren't all John's to the best of our knowledge I would get these, guys she would say that her car had broken down she had a photograph of kids not her own that she showed to whoever was driving and said i've got to get back to my kids they're hungry i need to go feed them or whatever and so she flagged down cars and said you know my car's broken down of course any victim who is found nude we can assume that there was a sexual transaction But I think that the men who are murder victims, after all, you know, we should give them the benefit of the doubt in certain occasions. There's two or three in here who I tend to think it may not have been a sexual transaction. We have to also give this some context. Back in those days, people hitchhiked. People stopped and gave people a ride. You know, if if my father, my late father, Saw a woman on the side of the road trying to flag help. I bet you he would have stopped and said, Are you in trouble, miss? or whatever. I stayed in touch with some of those families over the years, and it was a great source of pain for them, Jim. That not only had their loved one been murdered, their father, brother, uncle, whatever it was, not only had they been murdered but they were labeled in this way, it was terribly painful. And when Eileen later on, getting nearer to the time of her execution, confessed there was no self-defense, I murdered all these men in cold blood, it was a great relief to, for example, the sister of Troy Burris, who was so close with Troy that they were like twins in a way. They were just that real tight sister-brother bond and it had hurt her so deeply over the years that he was labeled as some kind of violent rapist.
0: So let's get to um, how was she
1: caught? Okay, well, it did take quite a while, and Eileen Eileen later would claim that the cops deliberately didn't catch her and deliberately didn't arrest her. They wanted her to kill more and really be a serial killer, a real, you know, big bad serial killer. Needless to say, that didn't happen. What happened was the murders were in four different counties. They didn't talk to one another in the way that we do now. There wasn't the communication. There wasn't the electronic hookup or whatever. So it took months. First thing that kind of kicked in was that the men's cars, their seat was always pulled forward. i five 5'6", I believe. So... It, it was not in the position it was for the man who had driven the car, um, especially a couple of the guys who were quite tall, like David Spears was, I think, well over six feet. So, you know, when they began to think, okay, this could be a woman, which was a wild thought in those days, you know. But they started up a task force after months And when they started to come together, and um, Brian Jarvis in Marion County had created a database on the computer where he put in, plugged in all the different elements of the crimes and everything, and they could see correlations. They began to see correlations. They began to talk. They began to confer. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the FDLE, got involved. And so it really became more of a task force situation at that point, you know.
0: And what, which case did, I mean, which, which one did she just, uh, what was the last one that she got caught on?
1: Walter Antonio, I think was December 1990. I think that was the last one. Ty had, yeah, I'm pretty sure Ty had, and forgive me for being rusty, but it is, It is a long time ago, 1990, folks. Um, Ty had just gone home to Ohio for Thanksgiving, and Eileen killed someone while she was away. And Ty came back. So any time you ever heard Ty say she was afraid to leave Eileen, that was not true. That was not true. Now, there was no evidence to Ty Tie tie to any of these murders, tie tie to any of these murders. And she had solid, rock solid alibis for several of them. But she did come back to Eileen. But when, but the heat was on at that point, there were sketches done. After they crashed the car, you know, I told you that they'd had Peter Seam's car for a month, they crashed it. They were drunk, a, a pair of skunks. Do skunks drink? I don't know. Drunk as skunks. <laughs> so, yeah, they crashed this car, and there were witnesses to that, and they tried to get away as quickly as they could. Eileen ripped off the license plate of the car, and the drawing that resulted, well, let's just say that some of the witnesses thought they were two guys. That didn't help, you know, in terms of catching people, um, but that drawing And it didn't go wide initially. They didn't want to circulate it wide initially. They didn't want to tip anybody off. You know, it's always that fine balance with police. Do we let them know? Do we tip them off? Do they help us widen the net? Or do we keep it under our hats? So they'd kept it for a while. But eventually that fall, you know, the drawing went wide. And so they began a tip line. And it had a massive amount of calls. And Eileen came up several times, interestingly enough, not with her own name. She had used her sister's name in a lot of instances. Her sister aunt, you know, the grandparents she grew up with had two kids other than Eileen's mother that were still in the house. And so the sister aunt, Laurie Grody, was one of the identifications she took. Cammie Green, who was Ty's best friend and who with whom they spent that first weekend in the house, was another of the IDs that Eileen stole. And she stole left, right and centre, you know, starting very early in life. Yeah. So Uh, They still didn't have her actual ID at the beginning there, but that was how it all came together. There were enough tips and things. But then they started doing um, the rounds of the pawn shop, pawn shops, plural. And what finally um, caught her was a fingerprint in Florida at that time anyway, if not now. You had to leave a fingerprint when you pawned items. And she'd been in and pawned Richard Mallory's stuff and left a clear fingerprint. So at that point, the picture was coming very clear.
0: And um, in a brilliant piece of poetic uh, justice, she was arrested at the last resort biker bar. Um, but tell us, uh, like, was did she start sort of
1: singing right away, or was she quiet? Yeah. Ask for a lawyer. She she sang, if you want to call it that, right away. Insofar as there's a three-hour confession tape. Yeah, um, but what really um, precipitated all of this was a series of phone calls with Ty. The police had followed Ty up to Ohio, but they'd become fairly convinced she was not involved, and they brought her back down to Florida, put her in a motel, wired the line, and had her call Eileen in jail. And Eileen and she had these conversations in which Ty – did a pretty good acting job, actually, of saying they're coming after me. I'm not going to prison for you. I didn't know anything about any of this. And Eileen, of course, would say, I know you didn't, honey. I'm not going to let you take the fall for what I did, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a, uh, several phone calls, I've forgotten exactly how many, that were taped where she kind of coaxed her more and more at some point Eileen said to her, are you sure you're not wearing a wire? Are you sure they're not listening in or whatever? But she kept talking and Ty th- was still her mainstay. But interestingly enough, although Eileen must have had some idea that she wasn't going to walk away from this, although she didn't know how much the police knew at the time, but she she still was very invested in Ty. You know, she still wanted that connection. So she went and said, okay, I'm ready to confess to what I've done because Ty was not involved and I'll tell you everything. So it became of course
0: a confession, but once a attorney uh, gets involved, which is proper, uh, we then look for, okay, we're not gonna, there's no way we're going to deny after all this evidence that, that you were, The shooter, if you will, Mm -hmm. but now we have, we're going to spin our defense.
1: What I go back to is always the evidence. You know, we're like detectives in our business. As you know, Jim, you have to follow the evidence, you can't take anything at face value. And what was always so compelling to me with Richard Mallory, nasty character though he may have been. The man was fully dressed behind the wheel of his car when the first bullet went in and when his body was found, he was still fully dressed. If he'd been undressed, if if they'd found the leads to the stereo equipment that she claimed she'd been tied up with, she had buried evidence along the way. She had, they found the vodka bottle and the orange juice and the, glasses and stuff. Um but there was never any sign of this visine, rubbing alcohol, ties to the steering wheel, etc. And plus you've got a fully dressed man, which is a very different situation. And the medical examiners, you know, testified to the bullets and what went in where and it paints a different picture. It's a lot more comfortable for many people to think of her as a victim. And she was a victim, but she also created victims. But the first trial was several weeks. And yes, I was there throughout. I don't think anyone else was actually from the media. I mean, um, there were daily reporters from Florida, of course. Now, and, it, yeah. what? Give
0: us your impression of of did Did you even
1: believe any of it? Uh, personally, no. Yes, absolutely not. Because by then, I'd spent a year digging, interviewing, reading medical examiner reports, talking to just about everybody that I could. And no, I didn't. it just didn't add up. You know, um, it didn't tie with her earlier accounts of the encounter. It was hard for me to imagine that she would have omitted to say to the police when she confessed, he raped me, he tied me to the steering wheel, he brutally raped me. I just can't imagine how she would have not said that. And so when it came out a year later, to anyone familiar with the whole story, like me or the police or whatever, you know, I think there were a few open mouths. But I think the jury was, it's self evident with the jury, but truthfully, the most compelling point that the prosecution was able to put over was when the judge agreed to allow similar fact evidence as it was called and basically richard mallory's jury was to come to a decision based on richard mallory's murder but the jurors knew there were these other murders six seven if you count peter seams but that was Peter Seam's daughter took the stand, the, and um, the, prosec- uh, the defense, her original defense attorneys uh, at trial basically put on a case that was, well, they, they didn't really, there wasn't really much they could say, much they could put on. The prosecution case was so strong. Um, the evidence was so strong, and, and we, we listened to a lot of her confession in the courtroom too, and Ty testified. And when Ty came in and took the stand, and the, she'd been put in a sort of colourful outfit, and she looked well groomed, etc. Not at all like the Ty that I'd come to know in other circumstances. Um, Eileen kept staring at her. Needless to say, and she badly wanted to connect with her. She wanted, and Ty didn't look at her. Period. She just didn't look at her. I would say, uh, without checking my facts, I would say she was on death row for a decade. Decade, yeah. I think and that's the last chunk right. of the book is that death row decade. So it's in there for sure. But one thing. Think you know that often is wrong when I read about stuff. Uh, it's important to remember that Eileen chose to be executed, she chose to drop all her appeals. She fought, in fact, to be executed. She wrote to the judge, she wanted to go, she wanted to, in quotes, get right with God. She'd become very Bible oriented and she. You know, I don't know. She thought if she believed in heaven, she may have thought it was her only way. I don't know. Right. She she declined terribly psychiatrically during that decade, as you can imagine. Um, But she did choose it because people often say, well, Eileen Warner shouldn't have been executed. This one should have been executed. And in actual fact, you know, you do have to remember that she did have all her appeals. She had the right to appeal, and she declined.
0: And um, as you do point out in the later half of the book, um, as you say, she she got God. They mostly do. They come to Jesus. She actually, a little twist, again, that's in the book, is that a, a woman adopted Eileen, which allowed her to go visit her in the prison. And of course she, this woman was quite the born again. And so they prayed together, et cetera. And I think in the beginning of her uh, long uh, stay on death row, it's possible that Florida had the electric chair, but by the time she was executed, they did uh, change over to lethal injection. And so yes, she was uh, uh, put to death by by lethal injection, uh, a death that she in the end did request. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a couple of old folks here sitting around trying to remember things out of their aged brains. Hopefully we put something together that you enjoyed listening to. So once again, I want to thank Sue Russell uh, for her persistence and getting this together. And before I go, the book Lethal Intent, available online. It's
1: been a pleasure. A pleasure for me, too. Thank you, Jim.
0: As we close, I'd be remiss if I didn't let you hear part of the story from Eileen's own mouth. So here are some clips from interviews she gave while waiting on death row to be executed.
1: I killed those seven men in first-degree murder and robbery. As they said, they had it right. A serial killer. From the beginning, did you know that you were going to kill them? When they picked you up in that car, I pretty much, <clears throat> I pretty much had them so, uh, selected that they were going to die. But when you're saying that um, there was no self-defense, so there was no self-defense. No, there was no self-defense, Nick. And that this is the last time, I'm gonna say it. You have to kill Eileen Morris because she'll kill again.
0: Well, thankfully, there's little chance of that, is there? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you liked today's episode of Murder Most Foul. And if you did, that you'll tell your friends. If you want to find out more about Sue Russell's work, her books, she has several. She can be found on Facebook and just by googling Sue Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L. In the meantime, until we meet again, take care, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.